Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today, and it's my hope that uh, you've been in the Word and in prayer each day this week, and that you've just been growing closer to the, uh, to the Lord, and that today is simply an addition and a supplement to your own time in the Word. So let's dive in, let's get started, and we can see what God has for us today in His Word. So if you would, please turn in your own copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. I'll be continuing our usual habit reading from the NASB, but feel free to read along in whatever translation you have, whichever one you're comfortable with. And if you don't have your Bible with you today, there's one right in the front seat in front of you. I think it's appropriate since today we celebrate when Jesus first entered Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, just days before he was to be crucified by the very ones who would cheer his entry, that we take a break from our usual study in 2 Corinthians and look at one of the teachings of Jesus. And in this particular study, we will be looking at what it means to be a part of Jesus' family and what he says about that in his word. So picking up in verse 46, it says, while he, this is Jesus, was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Verse 49 says, And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, for context, Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. In just a few days, he'd be welcomed into Jerusalem by the same crowd who would later shout for him to be crucified. We're going to see that this week, right? He is currently ministering in the region of Galilee and will soon return to his hometown where he will be rejected. And so the region of Galilee, he's making his way to different cities, ministering and he's healing, but he's ultimately making his way towards where? Towards Jerusalem. He has already sent out his disciples in chapter 11 to minister. He gave them authority to cast out demons, to perform miracles. And he told them to preach the gospel to the surrounding regions, to the Israelites. And in the beginning of chapter 12, we see the Pharisees gathering together to ask Jesus questions to try and catch him doing something wrong so they have a reason to kill him. Now, the Pharisees are always, always the bad characters in the New Testament. They are the example of what you don't want to be as a believer. Both John the Baptist and Jesus call them a brood of vipers, and Jesus calls them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs with dead bones inside in chapter 23. And throughout all four Gospels, they reject Jesus as the Messiah and search for a way to accuse him and kill him, and they eventually succeed. So not the kind of people you want to both end up or be around as a believer. In this passage, we see Jesus, and he is at a home in Capernaum. The Gospel of Mark records this for us. Capernaum served as sort of like a headquarters. He spent a good deal of his ministry there before continuing on to Jerusalem. He selected his his disciples, given them the authority to cast out demons. He sent them to preach the gospel to the Jews. And upon the disciples' return, we see a lot of interaction between Jesus and between the Pharisees. 
First, the Pharisees confront Jesus in a grain field over laboring on the Sabbath. They see Jesus and the disciples uh, eating heads of grain on their way um, to Capernaum. And they consider that as work. And by this time, they had filled up the Old Testament law with so many regulations and so much legalism that they considered anything, basically anything, other than resting on the Sabbath to be sin. And so they see them eating these heads of grains, and they go, you're working on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus say? He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Then later, in the synagogue of Capernaum, they confront him again over his healing of a man with a withered hand. And this time, Jesus actually asks them first. He goes, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, to do good on the Sabbath? And it was. And the Pharisees had nothing, had nothing to say to that. And then they confront him once again when he cast a demon out of somebody. And this is, we think this is here in Capernaum. And this particular miracle of casting out a demon begins a lot of dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. And this is all, this is all once again, this is context that's leading us up to our passage in chapter 12. Jesus first accuses them of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And he talks to them about bearing good and evil fruit. And he says they're not bearing good fruit, they're bearing evil fruit supposed to be the leaders amongst the Jews. And over that, they're supposed to recognize that he's the Messiah. This is the one they've been waiting for this whole time. He's standing right here. And then the Pharisees then ask Jesus, well, if you're, if you're a Messiah, we want to see a sign. We, we want you to prove it. This is kind of strange figuring they've been around him this whole time. He's been performing signs and signs and signs and signs. Now they're like, we want you to, we want you to perform a sign right now. And how does Jesus reply? He says, there will be no sign given to them except what? The sign of Jonah, which is that he will die and be raised again to life in three days. And we're going to see this come Friday, come Sunday. Just as Jonah was in the belly of a whale three days, that's what the sign of Jonah is. So this brings us back to our passage. This is what happens immediately before verses 46 through 50. So let's read again in verse 46, if you'll look down at your own copy of God's word. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Now Mark records that the crowds around Jesus were so incredibly thick that you couldn't, couldn't even eat a meal. Can't move your elbows around. There's so many people. And you can imagine why. You hear of this person that's walking around regions of Galilee who can heal, who can cast out demons, and he's He's teaching. People are just desperate to get around Jesus to hear what he has to say, to see miracles, to perhaps be healed themselves. Think of the lame man being lowered through the roof in Luke chapter 5 by his friends. The extreme measures those men went to just to get their friend healed. They had to come down through the roof because the crowds were so thick. This This is the kind of picture we're conjuring here. And the fact that Jesus's family isn't right next to him, they're waiting outside, just goes to show how large the crowds were. Now it says, Jesus' mother and brothers. So who are his mothers, who, who is his mother and who are his brothers? So this refers to Jesus' actual family. So his mother is Mary, and his brothers are actually his stepbrothers, so that would be James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Mark also mentions that Jesus had sisters as well who were present at this event but are unnamed. And as a footnote, you might be wondering, well, where's Joseph? So Joseph isn't named here um, or anywhere else besides the book of Matthew. So we can assume that he's probably no longer alive come this event. James 
would later become the leader of the Jerusalem church and actually write the book of James, which is, I think is super cool that Jesus' brother would eventually become the leader of the Jerusalem church. Just an awesome Christian. Judas would later write the book of Jude, and he would later become a believer as well. Now, I say later because at this point, his brothers do not believe that he is the Messiah. And John records this for us in chapter 7, that none of them believe that he is the Messiah. They don't recognize him as such. Mary, we can most likely say, did believe Jesus was the Son of God because of all that had happened to her. She, uh, an angel had appeared to her and told her what was going to happen, that she was going to bear Jesus. This is understandable, of course, that the brothers wouldn't believe that he's the Messiah. I can't necessarily blame him as somebody who has three brothers, and I'm sure as people, you, know, you, you guys probably have siblings as well. It'd be hard to believe that one of your brothers is like, I'm the Messiah and I'm the Savior of the world. You would probably think that they were out of their mind or that they were looking for attention or something like that, something similar. And it would come across as super far-fetched. And I would think that they were out of their mind. This is what, this is what Jesus, his family, that's what they thought. It's what his brothers thought. And Mark records this for us in chapter 3. It's, a, it's the same account of the same story, but from a different perspective. It says, and he came home, this is Jesus, once again to his home in Capernaum. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent, like we said, that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, his own people are his family, possibly close friends, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses the only way that they could explain what Jesus was saying and the miracles he was performing were he had, to have, he had to have lost his mind. He has to be crazy. And so it says they went to take custody of him, which is the same word that's going to be used when Jesus is arrested and taken into trial. We'll, we'll see this word used later, later this week. This is what that means. So they came to take him out of the public eye, take him, take him away from the people because this has gotten way too out of hand. They had no doubt, Jesus' family had no doubt, heard about the teaching and the incredible, incredible miracles and that there was a huge crowd at the house. So they came, to, they came to take Jesus away. And I say all this about his own family because in a couple of verses, Jesus has a very important thing, a very important thing to say about family that I don't think we should miss. So we get this picture of Jesus. He's in a house. He's preaching to the crowds. The verse is while he was still saying this. His family is outside desiring to speak to him. And looking back at our passage, verse 47 says, Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. So this is Mary and the brothers. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? So here we get a sort of shocking and unique response from Jesus. I mean, we have someone telling Jesus that his family is here and that they are outside waiting for him, wanting to speak to him. And he responds with, who is my family? And I'm sure if I was there and if you know, other people were there, they would say, what are you, what are you talking about? They're, they're right out there. Everybody, everybody knows your family. So he answers a very normal statement in a non-typical way. And we know that Jesus is not denying or rejecting his family in any way. He's not showing hate towards his family. We know that Scripture commands, Scripture has a lot to say about families and husbands loving their wives and wives submitting to husbands and children honoring their fathers and mothers and parents raising their children up to love the Lord. So we know he's not rejecting his family here. 
But it's just, it's just a very odd statement. And we know that the trend is normally when Jesus has an odd statement to say, there's something that's going to follow it. Because this, is, this isn't the first odd statement that we've seen. We have Jesus saying, whoever looks at someone with lust is an adulterer. And people never heard that before. And whoever hates his brother is essentially a murderer. And that just encompassed everybody. And so we know Jesus is going to have... He's going to have a point here. So let's see what he has to say in verses 49 and 50. So if you look there, and we'll just back up a little bit. Someone said to him, Behold, your mothers and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven he is my brother and sister and mother. This is an awesome statement. And there are several things to note here that I don't want us to underemphasize. don't want to underemphasize what Jesus says in this passage. So first, first among those, I think that the emphasis in this passage is on the believer's commitment to his relationship with the Lord. This is a very simple statement that Jesus gives here in verse 50, and it can be read very literally. You are the family of Jesus when you do the will of the Father. Now, what, what is the will of the Father? Is this, something, is this something nebulous that we can't really know? Or Luke records for us what the will of the Father is, and I like how he puts this. Again, it's the, it's the same exact account of this story. He writes in chapter 9, verse 21 of his gospel, My mother and my brothers are these. Those who hear the word of God and those who what? Those who do it. We've heard that verse here before many times on Sunday. And just as a side note, I like this about the Gospels that there are four different accounts, but they're of the same story. And none of them are exactly alike, and yet they don't contradict each other. And it just gives a lot of authenticity to the Bible. You think of if there were four witnesses to the same car crash, it'd be a little strange if they all had the exact same story, same details. It would seem a little suspicious, like they were trying to set something up. But if they had different stories, then it would seem like a more, a more legit testimony. And that's what we have with the Gospels. They don't contradict each other, but they're from different perspectives, and they have different words as they would if multiple re- people wrote, the same, wrote of the same account, the same story. That's what we have in the Gospels, and that's what Luke does for us. So I like how he rewords Jesus, what Jesus says. He, what Jesus says. He goes, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and who do it. So that's, that's the will of God right there. So you see, it's a very simple command from Jesus. When the believer does the will of the Father, which is what? Doing what he says in his word, they are considered as Jesus' family. You show yourself to be Jesus' family when you are committed to him, and you are committed to him when you carry out the commands he has for believers in his word. And we've gone through a lot of those commands, and I'll list a few later in the future, but it still is. I like to point out, it, is, it still is very simple, very simple. Secondly, it is important to note in this passage that this is not a doctrine of salvation by works. And Paul makes this very clear in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and throughout a lot of his epistles, that it is by grace that you were saved, and that it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. I remember memorizing this verse with my dad before bed when I was little because he just wanted me to know that it was, 
exclusively by God's unmerited grace that we can receive salvation. There's nothing we can do to obtain it. And Jesus is still saying that. We don't want to go off on a rabbit trail, but I think it's important to know that Jesus isn't saying people receive salvation by doing X, certain things. It is simply by grace. But doing the will of the Father is simply an outflow of a changed life that comes about through the work of the Holy Spirit upon salvation. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. Thirdly, Jesus makes similar comments about the family and about commitment to him in Luke chapter 14, if you want to turn there in your own copy. And this, this passage will just help us illustrate our point a little more, and it shows us what part, another part of the will of God is. And what Jesus is doing in Luke 14, this would have been a short time after the event that we're looking at in our passage in Matthew 12. And Jesus would have been on his way to Jerusalem. He would have been, as usual, crowded by people who want to listen to him. And he says something very interesting here, and again, very shocking. He turns to the people around him, around him and he instructs them about life and the cost of being his disciple. If you look at verse 25, it says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. At first glance, it seems like, well, Jesus had to have hated his family. I mean, we have what he's saying here in Matthew 12, that he's saying, who are, who's my family when his family's there? And then we have here, he's saying, he who doesn't hate his own family cannot be my disciple. If you don't hate your, fam- if you don't hate your own family, you can't be his disciple. What does, that, what does that mean? That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying you literally, you're literally hating and showing malice to your family. What he's emphasizing here is that it is the believer's duty and will of the Father to prioritize his relationship with God, with the Lord, before his familial relationships or any other relationships or any things in his life. Matthew words Luke 14 like this. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And this is what Jesus is getting at in our passage in Matthew 12. And this is what he means by his comments of, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He means that the Lord should be first. That the believer's love, dedication, and commitment to his family and other relationships should almost look like hate in comparison to his love and dedication and commitment to the Father in doing his will. And what did we say that the will of God was from Luke 8? It is hearing the word of God and seeing the commands, understanding them, seeing the commands that he has for believers and doing them. It's also important to note that the statements given in Luke 14 are not Jesus' preferences for the believer, not just preferences. He doesn't say that you could be my disciple, maybe, if you, do these, if you do these certain things. He says you cannot be my disciple. You can't. 
And so his statements in Matthew 12 and, and here in Luke are just very simple lines of thought. You do my will, you are as my family, and you are truly my disciples. If you don't love God more than your family, your wife, your kids, friends, your things, and even your own life, Jesus says taking up your own cross and following after him, Jesus says that you cannot be his disciples and you don't love him and you are not his family, even if you do say that you love him. If these things are true, Jesus makes clear the reality. It's all just very cut and dry. You do what he says, you're his family. If you don't do what he says, you're not his disciples. So I ask, and this is just the application of this passage. When we're, when we're studying the Bible, we want to see what the word of God says and what it means by what it says, and then you move to application. So I ask, do you prefer Jesus in doing his will over the things in this world, even the good things that God has placed in your life? even your own life. Because if you don't, then I would propose to you that you probably aren't his disciple. Not that something cannot temporarily come in between you and your relationship with the Lord, something that you struggle with, but is this the continuous pattern of your life? And that's, that's what's crucial. Is this, is this the habit over the long run? Another part of God's will is to not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed. And that if you love the, and that if you love the world, what does the Bible say in 1 John 2.15? He who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So I don't want you to be deceived. If you have other people in your life and other things that come before your relationship with the Lord, you can't be and you aren't his disciple if the Lord is second to you, if he's second place. And this is, that's not what I'm saying. That's, these are Jesus' words in Luke and in Matthew. This is what he's saying. And this really just flies in the face of the type of cultural Christianity that we see today that's very popular, the comfortable Christianity, the easy believism, where people say they, that they are a Christian only in their words they said a prayer once when they were seven, and they show up to church once, every once in a while, and they live like the world the rest of the week. And their life doesn't show any evidence of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And they try and walk as closely with the world as they can without crossing the line. And my fear is that there are many people, many people in the church today who would claim to be a Christian, and yet they are not, they're not carrying out the will of God. And you see in Matthew 7, what what does Jesus say? He says, many will come to me on that day and say what? Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons, perform miracles? Those people thought they were going to heaven. They thought they had had the ticket. They were going to show up and they were going to be applauded and they were getting in. They had it. And what what does Jesus say to them? Another very shocking statement. Away from me, you workers of iniquity. They weren't carrying out God's will. People today, a lot of them, falling into, falling into this category, they put their relationship with the Lord on the back burner when it should be influencing and, and affecting their whole life, should be sanctifying them. 
These people would say that they are Christians, like we said, but, the, but Jesus clearly says here that these type of people, they cannot be his disciples. And I think of James, the brother of Jesus, when he says in chapter 2 of his book, he says, What good is it, brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no works? Can such a faith save him? And it's a rhetorical question. What's, what's the answer? It's, it's no. Now, going back, to, going back to our passage, a fourth aspect to note here is that in this passage, we see an example of what our relationship should be with other believers in Christ. If by doing the will of the Father, we are considered Jesus' brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, like we saw, then we have this familial relationship with one another, don't we? I mean, just by logic. If, I, if I'm considered as Jesus' brother and somebody else is considered as Jesus' brother, then we are brothers, one and the same, with each other. And so we have a duty to other believers, and we see this type of familial language throughout the New Testament all the time. Especially Paul with his audiences, and we see this in 2 Corinthians and his other letters. He uses terms like brothers and sisters in Christ to refer to fellow believers. This is us in the church, brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in Christ. You've got to make sure we see each other that way. Paul does a remarkable job illustrating what our relationships with fellow believers in the church should look like. In Romans chapter 10, he writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. And here's the word, brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That, those aren't actions you do with a stranger. That's how our attitude should be to one another in Christ. And just to tie this back to our earlier point, when we put the Lord first in our lives, and when we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when we prioritize not just hearers of the word, but when we prioritize being doers of the word, and when we love the Lord more than anyone else, more than our stuff, and more than our own lives, that tends to trickle down into our other relationships. When we prioritize them in our lives, it enables us as believers to love each other as we should. In fact, it would appear that in the word, we can't love one another as we should if we haven't placed the Lord first in our lives if we aren't doing his will. We can't love one another as we should. We can't love our wives as we should. Wives can't love their husbands as they should. We can't love our children, our friends. And I'm preaching, I'm preaching to myself as well. Uh, this is just what I'm, I'm learning in the word in my own time in the word. And so I'll ask you, and I'll wrap up with this. Are you doing the will of the Father daily? And have you put him in first place in your life? First over, first over everything, before your family, before your things, before your own life. And it seems very backwards, doesn't it? Just, it seems very backwards. It seems like family should be first and things should be first. And, most and you see this everywhere in the world. Put yourself first. Look after yourself, take care of yourself, and then take care of other people. This is just very opposite. 
put the Lord first. And then you will be enabled to love your family. And then you know who you are in Christ. Are you spending time each day in the word of God and in prayer so that you know what the will of God is for your life? Because you can't know what the will of God is for your life if you're not in the word and if you're not in prayer each day. And I'm not talking about God's plan for your unique life, like where you're going to get a job or who you're going to get married to. I'm talking about the practical will of God that we've been covering here each Sunday. Things like repentance. Dad talked about repentance in Revelation just a few Sundays ago. About keeping a short sin list. And a lifestyle not marked by habitual sin. That's not the pattern of the believer. But by repentance. Because we're not expected to be, we're not expected to be perfect, but we are expected to repent, be sanctified. That's what the Lord was saying to each of the churches. He was saying, this is the problem. You need to repent. This is the problem. You need to repent. He wasn't saying you need to be perfect. Why did you mess up all these times? He's saying you need to repent. Are you putting to death the deeds of the flesh that are in your life? The things in your life that don't please the Lord that you wouldn't want anybody to know about? These are the kinds of things that mark the life of a true change believer. And if this isn't what marks your daily walk, then you need to take some time to evaluate whether or not you're in the faith, as Paul says, and as we've been covering in 2 Corinthians. Because as we just saw, Jesus makes it very clear that you cannot be his disciples and hold on to your own life and not do his will. Jesus asks for full surrender. He says, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake, what does it say? Will find it. And isn't that promise so amazing? He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Eternal life, you want to find your life, right? Eternal life, that's what Jesus promises. So for those of you who find their life marked by these kinds of things, which don't save you, but are evidences of a true faith, things like repentance and keeping a short sin list, they don't save you, but they are evidences of a true Christian, someone who's given their life over to Christ and lives in obedience to his will. This should be an, this should be an encouragement to you, right? You're called Jesus' brother, his brother, the savior of the world, his brother, his sister, his mother, his father. And you found your life. For those of you who don't find your life marked by these things, and for those of you who haven't or may not have made the decision to repent of your sins and make Jesus your Lord and Savior, make, why not make today the day that you do? Because it's, it's never too late. Never. Romans 10.9 says, this is just the simple gospel right here. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let today be that day if you haven't made that decision yet. Let's bow our heads and be dismissed in a word of prayer.
Father God, we thank you so much for today, for the opportunity to gather together as a group of believers, Lord. God, thank you for your will being clearly written out for us, that we don't have to, it's not a nebulous thing. It's very simple. You've given it to us, your thoughts, your will for our life. And Lord, thank you for enabling us to do your will. It's not something we cannot accomplish. It's something we can through the Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you for that. God, and I pray that you would find us faithful in doing it because we don't know the day of your return, Lord. And I pray that we would be doing it each day. God, I pray for those who aren't saved today, that, Lord, today would just be the day that they put their trust in you, make you Lord over their life. They place you first. God, help us to walk with you in everything that we do this week. Lord, I pray all these things, and it's in your name that I pray them.